ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we have a real game changer for you today. And uh, actually, I'm hoping it's a, a game changer for me, because this author has written about the seven deadly sins that end up sabotaging you in, in your quest for success. And the book we're going to be discussing today is called Woman Up, and the author is Amy Cohen. Amy, I am so glad to welcome you to the show. Well, thank you. Likewise, I'm so excited to be here. Amy, why don't we start off uh, of just hearing a thumbnail about you and go back as far as you want, talk as broadly as you want. Our audience is used to hearing about kind of the, the full picture of you and, and not necessarily just limited to the book or the business you. Absolutely. Well, I... The interesting thing about sort of how I got here is that I became a career coach because I literally could not find a job. So just let that sink in for a second. And sort of the short version of the story is it's really, it's sort of like the cobbler's children has no shoes. And when I graduated University of Michigan a million years ago, I truly thought that they were going to hand me a job when they handed me a diploma. Mm. And that was not the case. And everybody around me was graduating and starting their new next professional chapter in their lives, if you will. And I always say, like, they were handing out jobs like Halloween candy. Or it was just sort of this most bizarre Oprah moment where she'd be like, and you have a job, and you have a job. And, and I was the only one that could not <laughs> crack the code. I mean, I don't know if it's, many of your listeners can relate to this, but it was almost like everybody else was in on the secret. Everybody else knew exactly what to do. They have the information. They have the secret password or the secret handshake except for me. So right. I, would and I, have, I have to just interject here, Amy, yeah. that it, it isn't just coming out of school that makes that happen. Right. And, and I certainly know so many, well, I'm going to say women, but I, I know there are men out there in this situation too. They just don't tend to talk about it, right, who right. You know, have lost a job because of a merger, an acquisition, a downsizing, I mean, whatever the reason is. And again, just what you described, everybody else is able to find that job. And for me, as, as a serial entrepreneur, it's the same feeling but different situation that I look at all of these companies getting funding and just doing so well and going out and acquiring companies. And, you know, here I am with my company that I've worked so hard to build. I have a travel tech company and, you know, and, and I'm just not there yet. And I have this right. recurring horrible dream. First of all, I don't <laughs> like cold weather. And in this dream, I'm on a ski lift. I don't like heights. Okay. Uh, third uh, component of this, you know, this living hell for me is that I'm not a good skier. And my very first time out on the ski slope, I actually uh, tore my ACL. So, uh, and as I am going up on this ski lift, I'm looking down and I'm seeing all these, and it happens to be men in my dream, all these men in business suits skiing the moguls. I mean, not just skiing, skiing the moguls, 
right? And right. doing it with complete ease. And, and that's my metaphor to what you have just talked about that you experienced coming out of college. It's so true, and you're so right. And, you know, the way that I describe it is especially sort of job transition, if you will, whether it's by choice or, or not by choice. It's one of those major life transitions that no one ever really teaches you how to do or prepares you for. And right. you're absolutely right that I think sort of wherever we are in our lives, whether we are, um, you know, professional employee, if you will, working for somebody else or an entrepreneur, we all have that lens and that perspective that it always looks so easy and so effortless yes. and so seamless for everyone else. And you realize that that's, always, that's not always the case. And right. for me, it was rejection after rejection after rejection. It was failure after failure after failure in trying to find a job. And it was, I would say, you know, we've all sort of heard of rock bottom. And what I came to discover was that there is a whole nother layer below <laughs> rock bottom <laughs> that I didn't even know. Oh, existed. I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. Right, but it's it's horrible. And so the quick version is I started working with a national sales recruiter to help me find a job because I thought, this is brilliant, right? There's people out there whose job it is to help you find a job. I'll be employed in no time. Well, that's not what happened. Again, it was failure after failure after failure. And one day I walked into his office and I saw an empty desk. And I don't know what it was about that particular day or the fact that I was subterranean rock bottom, but (laughs) I didn't see an empty desk. I actually saw potential. I saw my professional future in this empty desk. And I looked at him and I said, you have an empty desk. Why don't you give me a chance? And he looked at me and he said, all right, let's do it. And that's how I started as a national sales recruiter. And that's also when I discovered my big why. So I, would say I wasn't necessarily born a career coach, but I was born to be a career coach, no question. Mm. And I've dedicated my entire professional career to really sort of cracking the code, if you will, learning every tip, trick, strategy, nuance, solution, secret, everything you could possibly know so that you could be your own best career manager and achieve right. whatever it is you're trying to achieve professionally. And, right. and, and again, as I read through, uh, you know, just, well, you've, you framed this book to talk about these seven deadly sins. And I'm wondering if there's any way that I can read this book in like 20 minutes before my call with my investor at one o'clock. I, <laughs> well, I, I don't want to commit any deadly sins on that they, particular call. And they all apply to all of us. And yes. so what I recognize after working with hundreds of clients is that the faces would change, but the stories and the scenarios were the same. You know, there's a lot that we can't control in our careers, but we can all take so much better control of ourselves. And that's when I put together Woman Up, and those are the seven most common self-sabotaging behaviors that we all commit. But most importantly, how to solve them. I know. (laughs) Why do we do it to begin with? Why, Why do we sabotage our careers, our opportunities, relationships, you name it? Well, so much of it is conditioning. I mean, I'll just start off with the first one, which is the kindness conundrum. You know, women especially, we are raised to be nice, so nice. You know, we think of others before we think of ourselves. And what I talk about in Woman Up is just this propensity to Mm over-apologize. You know, we say I'm sorry for everything, just for breathing, just for walking into the room. I'm sorry. And I'm so sorry. 
We apologize for everything. <laughs> and it undermines our authority, our credibility, our power, all of that. You never, I mean, men apologize, but when they've done something wrong. We right. apologize as a way to keep the peace, <laughs> harmony, you know, to sort of diffuse the situation. We're so quick to say, I'm sorry. Right. It's really, it is, it is so, so true. And, and for yeah. our listeners, if you buy this book for nothing else, buy it for the 10 things for which you may never apologize. Ever. I love that. Right. I love that. So let, let's move on to the competency curse because okay. this one uh, is one that I think I get uh, sucked into because I, you know, I spent 20 years with the top travel technology companies in the industry, and then I went out on my own. I've, I've now spent, you know, close to that same amount of time. I'm now really, really dating myself. Um, but I became, you know, the top expert in my my field of, of understanding global travel distribution, and I'm wondering if this isn't, uh, you know, I mean, I, I can also be kind and I can also apologize, but I think this is my, my first real deadly sin. Well, the competency curse, I mean, it sort of affects women in, in a few ways. So first of all, we gain a lot of our confidence through competence. You know, we always want to be the smartest one in the room, the most mm-hmm. accomplished, the most prepared, the most certified. You know, I mean, we gain a lot of confidence through our competence. And the way that it sort of sabotages us is that it also sort of triggers that ego because then we're, we're needed. You know, when people say, oh, I couldn't possibly do this without you, and we end up just saying yes to everything because mm-hmm. we can, because we have that uber competency that we know we can get it done. I mean, you know, women, we can do a lot. And we truly believe that we can do it all by ourselves, all day, every day, and people will happily pile on more and more and more projects on your desk. And what happens is, is that that completely derails your professional agenda and goals, and it dilutes your expertise because now you're doing everything. Now you are the jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and you are a complete doormat because everybody knows you will do it and you will do it well. So while they're all sleeping through the night, happily, you're up all night killing yourself to do everybody else's work. And so it really, it's a slippery slope between being sort of a team player and lending a helping hand, and, but it's really a lesson in boundaries and knowing where your boundaries are and not being taken advantage of. Right, right. So moving on, the next one is perfectionism prison. And, oh. uh, you know, I, I certainly have uh, have had this in the past, although I've got to say that as I get older, I'm actually better about this and, and not not expecting that of myself. And first of all, it's not possible, especially when you're a complete overachiever and take on too much. You cannot be perfect at everything. <laughs> right. And fortunately, you know, with maturity comes that perspective. And so I think we all get a little better about that. But I always say there is not enough room to house all the women that belong in the perfectionism prison. And, <laughs> you know, and I happily say I'm the warden, but it's, we do it to ourselves. And so we are so just consumed with this idea that everything has to be perfect. It has to be the perfect opportunity at the perfect time and the perfect circumstances. And, you know, while we are obsessively worrying that all of our ducks are in a row, Men couldn't even care less what their ducks are doing. 
They don't. They don't care where their ducks are. It makes no difference <laughs> what they're, if they're ducks or in a square or in a circle. We want everything lined up. And so, the diff, the biggest difference and the reason why this sabotages careers is what studies show is that so women want a hundred percent of the job description, every single requirement qualification mm-hmm. before they feel confident enough to submit their their name for the running. So meaning, so we want to be the expert first and then look for the opportunity. Men, on the other hand, find the opportunity and strike while the iron is hot. They only need 60% of the job description before they're like, oh, I've got more than half. I'm good to go. Let's make it happen. (laughs) So really, you know, so while we're so consumed waiting for that perfect time and waiting for when we have 100%, opportunities are flying by. Right. And so it's a completely different um, mindset, and it's one of the hardest things that that women deal with is sort of understanding that I would say you don't want to have 100% because then there's no growth. (laughs) You you want to have an opportunity where where you're learning and growing because as adults, the only way that we learn and grow is when we feel uncomfortable. And women have to learn how to feel uncomfortable and recognize that as a positive and not a negative and give up the idea of perfection. Right. And, you know, I've I've learned that, I think, much more as a tech entrepreneur because in releasing technology, you know, if you wait for perfect, clearly you never release anything. But the other thing is that if you can look at that imperfection as opportunity. So if I turn off this feature now and work on that while I release the other things without that feature, then I have another opportunity for a press release in three weeks saying, ah, we've added this new thing, right, instead of apologizing of, oh, yeah, it's there, but it's not like we want it to be, which kind of combines – Right, the the perfection uh, prison back <laughs> back with the apology, uh, although uh, we we don't always wrap kindness around that. But um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the next one um, because I, I I sense that these all have a thread that that goes through them, and this next one is about the addiction to uh, affirmation. And, you know, we typically see this in people, uh, you know, I happen to have one of my children who isn't as secure as the other child. And, and, uh, you know, he just really thrives on on affirmation. And, and, And I could even see it as an addiction with him because he just needs to know that he's okay and that everybody thinks he's okay. And, and I realized a, a few years ago that this is why he, uh, he loves fishing because he can take pictures with those fish and everybody sees how big they are, right? And, mm-hmm. and he's not telling people how good he is. He's showing them, right? And it feeds that affirmation addiction. So let's talk about this in, in the business context. Absolutely, and you're and you're completely correct in saying you know the biggest sort of common theme and thread through all of these deadly sins is confidence, or the lack thereof, or mm-hmm. where we look to boost you know the areas where we look to boost our confidence. And with the affirmation addiction, it really is that idea of external versus internal. And you know when I'm coaching clients and when I'm talking about this one, it's the idea that. You know, you need to know that it's a job well done, even if you never hear job well done. And for women, you know, we have a tendency, we will hyper-focus 
um, that one, you know, a negative comment or a critique or, you know, area of improvement, especially when you're talking about a performance review, you know, 99% of it can be glowing and raving. You hear that one sort of um, area of improvement, if you will, and that's what you hyper-focus on. I'm not good enough. I'm going to be fired. They don't like my work. It's almost like we can't even hear it. And sort of the analogy that I always give between men and women is, so if a woman walks into a dressing room with 10 pairs of jeans and walks out with none, what does she say? You know, my legs are too short. My muffin top is too big. (laughs) You know, there's something wrong with me and my body. And men will go in with 10 pairs of jeans and walk out with none. And what does he say? What's the matter with these manufacturers? How come they can't make a decent (laughs) pair of jeans? And so it just illustrates perfectly that idea between internal and external. And if you are always searching for that external validation and your self-worth and your value and what you think of yourself and what you think of um, your work ethic and what you produce and, and all of that, you are going to be drastically disappointed and you're putting everybody else's opinion above yourself, above your own right. opinion. Yeah. So it's the same reason why, you know, in a different, slightly different context, but this whole idea of social media and people are obsessed with how many likes they get. And because that means something. That's that external mm-hmm. validation. That is the affirmation addiction on steroids. Right. And it's a huge problem. And rather than knowing who you are and what you bring to the world, you're really leaving it up to a whole bunch of strangers that's going to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Right. Right. Yeah, there's Yeah, a, and you know, it's so funny problem. because my my daughter uh, you know, called me this morning. She goes to the University of Warsaw in Poland and mm-hmm. uh she happened to have made a a uh, a controversial statement on social media, let's just say, about the political position of of Poland within the EU. And okay. uh and so she calls me. She says, "Mom, everybody hates me." <laughs> well, this this started, you know, with her class because she's studying psychology, which, uh, you know, therein kind of lies that problem. Um, you know, that everybody, you know, it's it's uh, kind of deadly sin number number five, which we'll talk about in a second. But you know, I mean, I just had to remind her, you know, that that platform, that particular platform, that when you share something, you know, you never get to give anybody context. Right. Right. And so trying to get affirmation um, and, and instead getting the opposite, right, and, and letting that affect your day or your week or your month or your life, right, um, you know, we, we really do need to be careful about how much we are disclosing, which, which is really the next one of, of this divulgence disease um, and, you know, again, I think social media has, has fed this uh, tremendously. And, you know, those who listen to my show regularly know that, uh, you know, I talk a lot about transparency because I think transparency is super important. Now, divulgence is, is uh, you know, again, the other end of the spectrum of exactly. being honest for the purpose of having other people be able to learn and relate and in some ways to understand that while we may look perfect to the world, you know, that, that we have our struggles too, but you could definitely can take that to, uh, to the nth degree. Absolutely. I mean, the affirmation addiction, the divulgence disease, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of continuity, let's say. And one of the biggest things about the affirmation addiction, just to kind of wrap it up, is it's really the idea, especially for women, 
that, you know, to really kind of develop a thicker skin and to not take everything so personally, especially in a professional setting, even though it may be sort of more, you know, for some women, more of their nature. But, you know, I would say one of the things I admire most about Ann Coulter, I mean, maybe the only thing we, we differ drastically in terms of political opinions, but her ability, she takes so much backlash. And she has she sticks to her message and she sticks to her convictions and she is true to herself and all of that. And so I think women can really take a great lesson from that and really sort of figure out how to accept feedback without it just sort of crushing their soul. That's the biggest lesson with that one. And then it feeds right. directly into the divulgence disease, which really is this tendency for women that on day one, new job, new office, new people, this idea that they just want to show up and throw up. Right. And because that's how we connect. That is how we relate is we share stories, we get intimate, we go deep, fast, and you know we want to tell all of our deepest, darkest secrets on day one. And whether it's in person or online, and I, I sort of I talk about sort of both areas, but it's really the idea that let an authentic relationship happen authentically. Let people right. earn your trust, and rather than just sort of giving it away because it can come back to haunt you, and it can come back to bite you in a really big way. And, and that's where, you know, just let it trickle out. You don't have to completely dump it on the first day. Let it right. just sort of grow organically and authentically. Well, that, that is such great, great advice. And, uh, you know, you, again, I, I forgot to mention one of the things I love about your book, and, and I've, I've kind of referred to it as I said that they needed to uh, buy the book just for those 10 things that you can't apologize for. Each <laughs> one of the chapters uh, has these success solutions and, and the things that you can do from a really practical perspective. Um, and so, for instance, in Perfectionism Prison, Embracing the Imperfect. Um, and, you know, in this one, uh, it's five simple rules to prevent too much information, right? right. And, and um, so, you know, I, I think if you're thinking about these sins and they sound to you like something that you need to work on, uh, this book, again, is so incredibly practical on this. So deadly sin number six, miscommunication mayhem. I think this one describes the entire United States and perhaps the world <laughs> over the last yes. year or well, so. <laughs> Certainly at the moment, yes, it seems like. Yes. So so how does this happen? How do people not communicate properly? And and you know, there there are so many levels of this. I mean, we've talked about social media miscommunication, which is just rampant. But there are also verbal miscommunication there's physical miscommunication and and things that happen of how people perceive you when they meet you exactly and i think that this one is sort of drastically underestimated and what people don't realize is that when it comes to communication seven percent seven percent of the way we communicate is verbal 93 percent of the way we communicate is nonverbal. It's body language. You are messaging and sending signals and clues and cues all day long through your body language, and your body doesn't lie. Right. And so understanding sort of what 
what that sort of looks like. So I'll do the verbal side first. And, you know, and oftentimes when I'm working with women especially is, and this also combines a little bit with the perfectionism prison, is that you're in the middle of a meeting and you're so concerned about saying the perfect thing at the perfect time in the perfect way and you're formulating all of your words that, you know, by the time you think of what you're going to say, the meeting has already moved on and they're 10 topics away. And so women actually lose their voice in meetings. And it's a huge way that it undermines their credibility, their authority, their expertise is because they're invisible. And invisibility equals dispensability in the workplace. You have to find your voice. You have to speak up. You have to interject. You have to have an opinion. All of those sorts of things. So I spend a lot of time on that. And then the other side is those, the nonverbal sort of communication, that 93%, it's also, you know, what I talk about is executive presence. Now, executive presence is that first impression, that first seven seconds with somebody's opinion of you when they first see you. So you haven't even, in seven seconds, you haven't even had a chance to open your mouth and dazzle them with your knowledge and, and how articulate you are. No, so this is, it's your communication, it is your presence, it is the confidence, it is how you hold yourself. And it really makes a big difference. In fact, when within an organization, your executive presence, your, your image and your presence and how you can sort of conduct yourself and how you command a room accounts for 30% of what it takes to get a promotion. Hmm. 30%. So as women are obsessively trying to, sort of, again, be the smartest and the most knowledgeable and all of that, what's equal is how you show up. Because they want to know, all right, can you hold your can you hold your own in a boardroom? What if you have a more outward facing position? Are you going to be a great reflection and ambassador of our organization? Do you look the part? And I would say, if you have aspirations of being an executive, you better look and act like an executive. That's right. executive presence. Because right. in terms of the miscommunication mayhem, is that any time the brain senses confusion, it automatically says no. Meaning, so if you are the CEO, but you don't really look like the CEO, if you're not sort of oozing CEO-ness, if you will, mm-hmm. it's going to create confusion in somebody's brain, and you're not going to gain the respect that you need to do your job. Mm. Well, I want to focus on this last one. As I mentioned, I'm I'm just going into a, a very, very important <laughs> phone call and, and really working toward um, a yes answer. Uh, in this mm. particular call, and the the seventh deadly sin is called undervalue epidemic. And yes. when you're in an early stage company, and anybody who's watched Shark Tank has seen this occur, uh, of the level of negotiation that can happen, you know, if you're very very confident about your value, and and it helps, of course, to have a business model that, you know, is already proven and you've got money flowing. But quite often you need money before you get to that place. And and uh, so in my world, again, the world of the, the serial entrepreneur, we're not undervaluating uh, or undervaluing necessarily our capabilities, as I think you're speaking to in this chapter. But, you know, we're kind of un undervaluing where we are, right, which, which is, is kind of a blend of a lot of different things. So talk to me about the disastrous triple D. 
Well, first of all, the undervalue epidemic really is sort of the granddaddy of all deadly sins, if you will. And this speaks directly to, to confidence and also, too, to how women are socialized. I mean, we're really taught that it's not polite to brag. I mean, we, you know, we're taught to play nicely with everyone in the sandbox, and it's frowned upon, it's off-putting when women brag, and, um, you know, it's very much discouraged, whereas with men, it's very much encouraged. And so we never really get comfortable with this idea of self-promotion. And what happens is the pendulum swings so far the other side is that we downplay, we dismiss, and we diminish our accomplishments, uh-huh. our successes, and our value. We keep ourselves small. And so, for instance, I mean, when the typical response of somebody pays you a compliment, whether it's you, your business, whatever it is, our gut instinct is to say, oh, it's no big deal, right? It's just my job. It's just what I do. Or it was really the team. You know, I contributed very little. (laughs) I mean, we do that to ourselves. I did the same thing. I mean, so when I wrote Woman Up and I got a publisher, which is no easy feat, And people would start calling and congratulating me, and that's fantastic, good for you, way to go. And what would I say? It's no big deal. You know, have have you been to Barnes & Noble? There's a million books. Everybody's got a book out. It's barely a book. It's practically a pamphlet. Don't even bother yourself. I mean, who says that? Who says that? But we say that. We do that to ourselves, and part of the reason why... You know, I love traveling around the country um, delivering keynote presentations on this information is because it's also a great reminder. All of these things are so subconscious and that we do it to ourselves and we don't even realize it, but they make a huge difference in how we show up in the world, especially in a professional setting. And so I appreciate you also recognizing the idea that, because I don't believe in just presenting the problem without also offering solutions. So especially in the undervalue epidemic, there are 12 steps to how to negotiate. Because as women, too, we are never taught to negotiate. Like, we would much rather have root canal surgery without anesthesia than to negotiate. Whereas men view it as a game. It's not personal. It's a game. It's sort of a sport. It's an activity. And, <laughs> and we dread it. Because, you know, our instincts are more, you know, we're just happy to be here. We just want to help. Um, we're motivated by other things. And we also don't like conflict. We don't like those difficult conversations. We don't like those, you know, potentially contentious interactions. And so it gets really tricky and really murky. And But, again, we also we do so much of that to ourselves. And so we need to undo it. And if I had a nickel for – I mean, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of clients individually – that that idea of self-promotion is the number one issue that I deal with on a daily Mm. basis. We all struggle with it. We do. Well, and again, here's one where you're giving in this chapter 12 tips because, and I can tell that this is the biggest problem because you've got the most tips for this particular one. So transforming your negotiating skills is core to having that proper sense of value and communicating it, right? So, uh, you know, not building on that miscommunication mayhem that we talked about. So so can we get from from being a sinner, right, <laughs> to, to success? And, and is there an onward and upward, um, you know, 
how do we get past where we are today? And clearly reading the book is a great first step, and I would suggest reading it with a a pen or a highlighter or those little sticky tabs that you can put on the page and, and revisit the tips because I think that this is something that you can't, it's not just once and done. You really do need to go back right. and revisit them. Well, and I have to say some of the best pictures I've ever received are people who have it so fully annotated. They have notes, they have, it's paper clipped, it's dog-eared. I mean, it's, it's you know, because it is. It's, the first step is obviously awareness in all of these things because, as I've said, so much of this is subconscious, whether it's right. nature versus nurture, whether it's environment, whether it is circumstance, doesn't matter. It's subconscious. So the first thing is just to sort of bring it to the surface and create some awareness around it. But I am also a big believer, too, in accountability. And one of the best things about Woman Up is that part of the reason why I also wrote it is I really wanted it to be also a rallying cry for women to sort of read it together and hold each other accountable. And, you know, if you see your girlfriend over-apologize and call her and say, Woman Up, you didn't do anything (laughs) wrong. What you should have said is excuse me or pardon me, not I'm sorry. And we can hold each other to a, a better standard. And so instead of sort of being all this competition and cattiness and, and when women are threatened by one another, my feeling is, is that, you know, individually we're all amazing, but together we are truly unstoppable. And that's the idea around Woman Up, is that none of us are perfect. We are all a work in progress. And, but together we can overcome so many of these behaviors and these deadly sins, if you will, than we can alone. So whether it's a mentor, whether it's a best friend, whether it's a colleague, you know, whoever it is that is there to support you and and vice versa, that's when the magic happens. You know, I mean, this goes back to the competency curse where we think we're Wonder Woman and we can do everything on on our own. No. Tell someone, say, look, all right, I want you to hold me accountable. Next Friday I have an appointment with my boss and that is the day I'm going to ask for a raise. Here's what I'm doing. So when you walk out of that room... Your colleague or your friend goes, how did it go? And you're like, nailed it. <laughs> I mean, that's what we need to do for, for one another. That's what's going to sort of, you know, raise the bar and take all of us up to that next level of success, regardless of how you define it and what you're trying to achieve. I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, I'm glad there's hope. <laughs> there, there, this is a message of hope, but not a message only of, of sin, right? So, so the, the book that we've been talking about this morning is Woman Up, Overcome the Seven Deadly Sins That Sabotage Your Success. And the author is Amy Cohen. Amy, can you tell folks how they can best follow you or get in touch with you if they would like to hear more about your coaching practice? Absolutely. Thank you. Well, hopefully I'm easy to find. That's supposed to be how it works. Um, Amy Cohen, or you can go directly to my website, which is womanuppower.com, and you can learn all about my coaching practice, speaking events and how to book me for one of your events if if that is appropriate. And also, too, I just came out with um, an online system. So it took my 20 years of transition coaching and I created the seven-step job search success system. And so if you are in transition, if you don't want to sort of live the empty desk story that I did and you need help with that particular part of your life, there's so many resources that I have available 
and to help you in all kinds of ways. I'm on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn. I would love to, to connect and to hear from your, from your listeners. Terrific. Well, again, Amy, thank you so, so much, and I hope you have a marvelous weekend. Thank you. Likewise, same to you, and good luck on your next call. Oh, thank you so, so much. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and go out and change your game today. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald.